interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Uh, you've said a lot about metaphor, although you only used the word three times. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Not seven, huh? <laughs> I, I'd be interested in your saying a bit more about metaphor in connection with uh, and God said mm-hmm. in Genesis 1. Yeah. For example, when he says, let there be light. Now, we know that there was no one else around to hear what he said. Uh, And we know that God has no vocal cords, so we shouldn't be thinking of God as a big superhuman person sending sound waves through the air. So when God says something, that's a metaphor for something. And I'd be interested in in what you would say it is a metaphor for. Metaphor, like analogy, though they're different, uh, has to have some kind of similarity to account for its difference. So uh, uh, you're exactly right uh, that the language of speaking is not to be literalistically applied to God, but it is to be literally applied to God. That is, uh, uh, divine speech is uh, uh, not, uh, not merely a human way of speaking about God. I think it's actually a divine way in which humans speak about God. So, uh, uh, though God has no vocal cords, no lips, no uh, wind that passes uh, the, uh, uh, through the throat for him, uh, God nonetheless creates words. Uh, and as he creates beings who speak, uh, he uh, is uh, understood uh, with words. Words that never finally capture God, but words that nonetheless communicate. So a whole theory of language in the background uh, uh, that is important uh, influenced by, as I mentioned last night, uh, Nicholas Waltersdorf, uh, who uh, has written a whole treatise, the Gifford Lectures he gave it at uh, uh, St. Andrews uh, a decade or so ago, called Divine Discourse. And, and there, uh, uh, Nick tries to lay out why this language of God uh, speaking and writing is, is so important and how we make sense of it. Uh, so I think in the same way that David sees Goliath as puny by comparison to God that nobody else sees. So Moses here in Genesis one, uh, writes of God speaking, uh, not because there isn't any other better metaphor, but because The divine speech is a very appropriate way to capture divine activity at this juncture. Uh, 
John's gospel begins uh, with a commentary, actually, on Genesis 1.1. The language of uh, in the beginning, which we find in Genesis 1, we also find in John 1. And John 1 plays this out in terms of Jesus. Jesus is the divine speech, as John says, the logos of God, the word of God uh, there is Jesus. John is trying to argue, in fact, that what's going on in Genesis, though we don't know the fullness of that story, is that God speaks Jesus, put it kind of crassly, if you will, and the world comes into being. Paul talks about it in another way in Colossians 1, a text we'll look at tomorrow morning, uh, uh, that Jesus is the one in whom, through whom, and for whom creation comes into being. So there's, there's something here that the concreteness of Jesus shows us who God is. Uh, so, um, is the language of speech, divine speech, uh, entirely adequate to capture this divine action, this divine activity? No, it, but I don't think it's fundamentally different than the claim that my words don't fully capture who I am. But, but they do tell you who I am. Right? So I, I think it's that the, the uh, both and uh, piece here I'm trying to uh, speak at, that we know God because God has spoken. Uh, and we're in his speech. We're in the story. We're in the narrative, if I could use a different language, uh, of God. But uh, um, c- come on back if that's there's some more here. Well, would you say that it's maybe more simply a metaphor for an expression of the divine will? But but of course that's a a, a metaphor as well, the divine will. Uh, or the divine action. All, in one sense, all human language is human language. But human language can get across the point it needs to get across. That is, there is, I think, real reference in language. It, it actually can get out to the world. It, but it's still human, it's still language. Uh, starting from the other side, I think God creates the world as a, a vehicle of... Uh, uh, such that the world can understand God. So God doesn't, I suppose, look down on the created order and say, gosh, uh, what, what metaphors could I use that these people would understand me? I think rather the, 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 the case is, the, the, the claim, the theological stake here, is that God creates the world with these metaphors so that we understand him. He creates the world with marriage, so that marriage serves as a metaphor of our relationship to... A very dominant metaphor, actually, uh, uh, of our relationship to God. Now, it, as I said before, marriage is not, and those of you who are know full well, it is not to be equated with our relationship to God. It is not itself a sacrament in that older sense of the word. But it is very sacred. It points beyond itself. There's something really mysterious, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, about marriage. Uh, marriage. Marriage is really weird when you think about it. 
You know, there's depth to it that you don't understand. Uh, as we were mentioning last night, you know, this uh, kind of uh, 20th century construct called dating uh, is really a game of charades. Uh, you know, uh, when you say I do, you haven't got a clue what you're committing yourself to. Right? 20 years in, you're just beginning to touch the surface. Uh, there is great mystery here. And yet something profound is going on. Uh, there is no more fragile place we find ourselves than in this relationship of enduring commitment when it is broken. Right? Brokenness really hurts when there's intimacy. Uh, but, uh, so the, it, it plays itself out so interestingly and so importantly. Uh, and I, I think God constitutes us in the created order with marriage in order that we would understand him better. Not exhaustively. Uh, there are lots of other... I, I think, actually, he creates uh, uh, the world uh, with um, institutions of kingship that we would begin to glimpse what it means for God to be king. But we ought to be careful of identifying his kingship as if it were merely like a human king. Uh, why it's so difficult for us to go back and read these texts across the scripture about the kingdom of God. I mean, when was the last time we had a king? More nearly, when was, when was the last time we made fun of kings, right? The, the British monarchy, you know, this weird and wacky family that the Brits still lived with, you know? That's about as close as we get to having kings. And yet throughout the Bible, the kingdom of God is just pervasive. How in the world do we understand it? A, a difficult uh, uh, task. Sorry, Carl. There will be time for more questions later on, uh, but it is time for our first break, and uh, it's important for us to have some time during the break, not least of all because we have a great book table in the back of the room. And uh, I'm going to take a minute just to tell you uh, how the book table works and a little bit of what we have there. Um, part of the mission of Chesterton House is to get people to read good books, okay? So help us fulfill that mission by coming to the back of the room and buying some of these books. This book table is provided on consignment by a fantastic independent Christian bookstore out of Dallastown, Pennsylvania called Hearts and Minds Books. And um, uh, the fellow there, Byron Borger, provides these for us every year. It's a great service to us. The books are available uh, for a bit of a discount off of the list price. And the way it works is books that are between... 10 and $20 or $2 off between $20 and $30 or $3 off, etc. That might be um, just a little bit more than if you ordered them, say, on Amazon or buy.com or some such place. But do know that when you buy books here, they are supporting a Christian bookstore, and that's significant in a couple of ways. Um, one, because it's going to a family that is tithing, but not only that. Uh, independent Christian bookstores like this actually help these sorts of books to remain in publication because they are promoting these books. And in the absence of such bookstores, it's actually harder for Christian publishers to stay afloat. So I would just sort of put in that plug for um, purchasing. I purchase all of my books through Hearts and Minds Books. Whenever I need something, I call them up on the phone, send them an email. I get everything through them. Um, uh, a few of the books that we have, we have a couple of uh, books from our speaker, including The Fabric of Theology and an edited volume entitled Personal Identity and Theological Perspective. And in general, the entire table that's over on this side of the room 
are other volumes on the general theme of identity and idolatry. A couple of other books you might be interested in noting, uh, Dr. Lentz mentioned books by Miroslav Volf and also Richard Middleton. I had both of those titles last year, <laughs> and uh, we were not able to get them in time this year. We do have one other volume by Miroslav Volf, his more recent book entitled The End of Memory. Um, he's, he's a very fine scholar. It's not the lightest read in the world, uh, but it's worth the effort. And um, a couple of other books that you might be interested in. We have uh, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, which was uh, as high as about number seven or eight on the New York Times bestseller list this past year. A very, very, very fine book of apologetics. We have uh, Andy Crouch's recent and award-winning book, Culture Making, which just won the uh, award for Christianity and Culture, 2009, Christianity Today. And some of you might remember Andy. He was a Cornell student um, back in my day and worshiped here at Bethel Grove. This is his first book, and he's been on the speaking tour this past year. Um, Dinesh D'Souza recently published a response to the New Atheists that is um, very articulate and has been a helpful contribution to the literature on that topic. And uh, we also have, over on that side of the room, an entire table of biblical studies that includes uh, books by people like David Wells, who was uh, Rick's predecessor in the uh, much-distinguished professorship <laughs> of theology. And this comes with dust jacket endorsements from people like D.A. Carson, J.I. Packer, Mark Knoll. So there's lots of good stuff back there. Um, and not least of all, there's this terrific CD, Heaven in a Nightclub, um, award-winning, that's right, uh, of, of a jazz concert and lecture. Some of you have heard about this that Bill Edgar did for us. We produced this CD, and it did about a month or so ago win an award for uh, excellence in independent music. These are $25 with the purchase of any book back there, it's $5 off. On the seats on this side of the room, I've put out a number of books, maybe 20 or 25 books or something like that, that are available strictly on a donation basis or for free if that's what works for you. Okay, There's a little envelope there. If you'd like one of those books, you can just grab it and put a few dollars or whatever you like in the manila envelope and head out the room, and um, that's fine. You don't need to check in at the book table at all for those. And I think that's everything. To buy books, um, you can speak with Carla, who's right back there behind the table, or with Justin, who uh, now works with me at Chesterton House. If you haven't met Justin, introduce yourself. He's been a, a great help to us. And um, we do take credit cards, so you have no excuses. <laughs> okay? I think that's it. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the break. Come visit us in the back of the room. Now, what awards did it win? Thank you.